He played Karakan. His rating was higher. But from move seventeen, the king's side was mine. Took my chances fast. My rook was a knife, and my almighty queen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ladies' Night, the official podcast of U.S. Chess Women. I'm your host Jennifer Shahadi, and you are listening to the artist Huga of HugaMusica.com, and that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh, Capablanca! His bishop was small. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast through shares and reviews and Apple Live. If you want to get more involved in all we do at US Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax-deductible donation of any size to our US Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. He has more experience, but I won't lose again. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ladies' Night. I am so excited about my guest today, Maria Konnikova. She is a New Yorker writer and psychology PhD and the author of three New York Times bestsellers. Her most recent, The Biggest Bluff, was how I met Maria as she chronicled her path from a poker newbie to a champion in a year, using her struggles and triumphs from Monte Carlo to Macau to show how poker can enhance your mental acuity in life. She also wrote The Confidence Game, which was about con artists. It was a book that I read before I even knew Maria. But today's conversation will center on her first book, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. Mastermind will also be the topic of our next Mad Woman's Book Club, which is a new U.S. chess women community that we recently formed around great books and chess. So thank you, Maria, so much for being my first ever guest on both The Grid and Ladies' Night. I am absolutely honored. And I love how in Mastermind, you talk about how meditation can be considered more broadly as something where you're not trying to empty your brain, but you're just focusing your brain, which is, of course, chess. So I, I really like that point of view. Did you find that in poker as well? I did. And it's funny. Um, I'm so glad that you brought that theme up because in retrospect, I didn't realize that it was such a commonality in the two books. And then at some point I had that epiphany and I thought, wow, I've been writing about mindfulness for a while. <laughs> about kind of the the importance of truly paying attention. I actually think that one of the reasons why Eric Seidel, who was my poker mentor, who's one of the greatest poker players of all time, is so good. And one of the things that he was able to instill in me and one of the edges I think I had going in because I did have this daily practice and did do yoga and all of these, was aware of all of these things. It is the fact that he pays attention and that so many poker players don't, even at the top levels. People are distracted. They're doing all of these different things. They're multitasking. They're looking at the sports scores because they're also sports betters. They're on their phones. They're doing this. They're doing that. And I think that that really gives you an edge when you're not doing that, when you're actually able to take in all of the information that's out there, because there's a lot. And even though I don't play chess, I can only imagine that the best chess players and the ones who are able to excel through anything, even when they're tired, even when other things are going on, are the ones who are able to clear their mind and pay attention and concentrate and don't need external distraction and actually have been honing their attention muscles, so to speak. 
Yeah, it's funny because as a chess and a poker player, I actually find that chess is easier to focus on because you almost have no choice. It's either your move or it's your opponent's move and it's going to be on you quite soon. Whereas in poker, because it's a, a game that you play for even longer hours in chess, for those of you who, who don't know the poker world, many times a tournament day will last 10 to 12 hours. Chess games, usually it's more like four. If you play two a day, sure, it's eight. Overall point is that chess is more like if you were playing heads up poker, it's like always your move, basically. Um, whereas in poker, actually, the fact that there's an option to think about other things, because sometimes you fold, I think is what makes it so difficult. You can choose to think about other things quite easily. Yeah. So in some ways, you know, I've made this point before that poker is a game that's more lifelike than chess in, in a lot of ways. And I think that that's actually what you just said underscores that point, because in life, there are always distractions and there, it's always easy to pay attention to something else. And you have to make the conscious choice to be present and to be in the moment. And when you are in an activity that forces concentration like chess, that's rare. It, it's rare that unless you're a surgeon, um, you know, where I'm guessing it's the same kind of laser sharp focus that you have to bring to chess. But in everyday life, in our everyday interactions, you always have to make that choice. And it's always a choice. And the default state is to and I write about this in Mastermind, is to just let your mind wander and to go from thing to thing to thing. That's how our brain normally is. Because way back when we were constantly scanning the environment for threats and for patterns and for all of these different things. And that's wonderful. I love that our brain is capable of you know, taking in so much and then making meaning out of it. But it also leads to distraction and distractibility. And that's been the case, by the way. And I want to make sure to make this point forever. You know, it's not like all of a sudden we have smartphones and we can't pay attention. I mean, monks centuries ago were complaining of their inability to focus on the fact that their minds were drifting when they were supposed to be praying. They called it acedia, the noonday demon. So this is something that the human mind has just always struggled with. And it's always something that takes a lot of effort, unless you're in a situation that absolutely forces you to pay attention. Otherwise, you're going to be out of that chess tournament pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, luckily in chess, usually it's not elimination, but still the point carries. Now, I don't want to underestimate that chess is like really, really, really difficult. And it's completely exhausting to focus. And one thing I struggled with in my transition to poker actually was that sometimes I tried to approach it as a chess player and like just like really focus. You know, and you've seen pictures of chess players are like their brain is like, you know, just like super intense. And actually that is too difficult. Like you you do 10 hours of that, you're just burnt out. And so I feel like when I see people like Eric Seidel or, you know, Darren Elias is another good example. They they focus the whole time, but their focus isn't that intense that they're gonna be like exhausted after two hours of it. I think that's such an important point. I can only imagine what it's like to play chess. I mean, I my chess career lasted about a week. I can talk about that if you'd like. Yes, please do. I do think that you you do have to modify the concentration because you will burn out. I mean, your brain's just going to explode if you're trying to bring that sort of focus to a game that lasts 10, 11, 12 hours. And let's remember that poker tournaments go until like 4 a.m. sometimes. You know, you're only, you might only be playing for 12 hours, but there were breaks in there. And so all of a sudden it's the middle of the night and you're body is tired and your mind is tired and your emotions, just everything is tired and you still have to pay attention and concentrate. But I think that if you were bringing your chest level focus, you'd probably just, I, I don't know what would happen to you. You'd be a little wet spot on the floor at the end of the day. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not sustainable, basically. But uh, yeah, tell us about your one week chess journey. I, I had never heard about this. So I never played chess. I mean, I've talked about this when talking about the biggest bluff. I never played games really growing up. I read a lot, but we didn't have a deck of cards in my house. No, I'm not. I don't really like board games. It wasn't something we did as a family. Our family bonding activity was my parents would read out loud to us. And so it was just never on my radar. But at some point, you know, I'm a Russian Jew. So at some point, my parents decided it might be a good idea for me to play chess. And so they signed me up for a chess club. I was in fifth grade, something like that. I don't know how old I was, 10 years old. How old are you? (laughs) Fourth, fifth grade, something along those lines. So I went and, you know, I had learned how all the pieces moved earlier like that. At least they taught me and this is okay. And then the next week they actually had me play a game and they did this, like this little mock tournament in this chess club and they matched us up according to skill. And they matched me up with a kindergartner who was five years old. So right away, you know, that's a slight blow to the ego when, you, when you're a 10-year-old and all of a sudden you're playing a five-year-old. But I figured, okay, fine, you know, I'll, I can do this. And then the kid beat me in three moves. And I left and I said, okay, I'm not going back. That's it for my chess career. Oh, no. <laughs> That's that's unfortunate. It was three or four moves. It was a famous opening. The scholars made. That's actually the very first chess game in the Queen's Gambit. The star gets uh, checkmated by the janitor, uh, Mr. Scheibel, with the four-move checkmate. Sorry for the huge spoiler, Maria, if you haven't seen it yet. I have seen it. Okay. We're good. <laughs> yeah, but that's unfortunate because in a way, like, I feel like chess is so social that even if, like, the skill level matches you with a kindergartner, I think it's, like, more important to try to, like, you know, create community through chess. So, like, you know, then, you know, you were you were discouraged. And later when in your chess career, of course, you see people more by their rating than by their age. So you kind of, like, go beyond that. But I think very early on, we should be trying to, like, make friendships in chess because then people kind of stay with it. I think that's a very important point. And I was, I was definitely discouraged. And uh, I don't think I've played chess since. But I still remember how the pieces move. And I actually did learn the scholar's mate after that. And I learned that I was supposed to move my knight, I think. <laughs> right? You're supposed to move your knight to a defend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They probably want the queen F3 one to attack you laterally. There's also a diagonal one. They could bring their queen out to like the diagonal square and then you need to use your pawn. But yeah, basically you wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened again. Every human chess player, really, even like Magnus Carlsen or Gary Kasparov, we we suffer from blunders, even the very top players in the world. Um, Although their blunders might be more like, you know, losing a pawn or missing um, an in-between move, whereas a club player, it would be like just falling for checkmate. I think that for a lot of chess players, reducing the frequency of their blunders will increase their skill level more than almost anything else. And what strikes me about blunders, it's sometimes they come from lack of focus, but often they also come from hyper-focus or tunnel vision, or as you explain it in your book, what researchers call attentional blindness. So you're looking so closely at yeah. the king side that you forget that you're hanging a rook somewhere in the queen side. It's a fascinating phenomenon. And experts experience it. So the classic example of attentional blindness or inattentional blindness, it's funny, it's one of those things that's called both things, attentional blindness, and some people call it inattentional blindness because you're not paying attention because of you're paying attention, right? That makes sense. It's one of those paradoxical terms. The classic example is the gorilla. And so in this classic study, a group of psychologists asked students to count the number of passes in a basketball game. And in the middle of the game, this guy in a gorilla suit walks through the court, stops in the middle, puts his arms out and beats his chest and makes a gorilla noise and then continues on. And what they found was that 
most of the students were so busy counting the passes that when they didn't even notice the gorilla, like their brain didn't process that there was a guy in a gorilla suit. They didn't have that information at their disposal at all. So they were looking straight at this thing and they missed it completely. And that's been replicated many times, oftentimes in real life. So some of my favorite examples are road crew that paved over a road where there was a dead deer in the road and they just paved over the deer and didn't even see it. And someone had to point it out to them later. And this happens all the time because when we're paying attention intently to one thing, we often fail to notice other things because attention is a finite resource. And when you're really paying attention to one thing, you often filter out everything else. And sometimes it's quite funny. And other times it can lead to tragic consequences. You know, it can lead to car accidents. It can lead to deaths because you're really, you're tuning out certain things um, because you're so focused on others. And that's the problem that our brains actually can't multitask. Our brains can't focus on more than one thing at a time. And so when you are, when you're an amateur, when you're not an expert at something, you can have a bit of an advantage when it comes to attentional blindness because you're trying to kind of look at everything and you don't have the laser focus on any one thing because you haven't yet figured out, oh, this is what I really need to be focused on. This is what I need to be doing. And if you're talking about a task or something like chess, you don't yet have the enough forward thinking that you already kind of have a game plan in your mind that you're focused on. And so when you're an amateur, oftentimes you just look at everything and it's not very deep, but at least you'll see the gorilla. You know, if you didn't really care whether or not you got the number of passes right and your mind was kind of drifting, you'd see that gorilla. <laughs> but if you if you were really laser focused, you wouldn't. And so I think that it's this trade-off and we need to be aware of it. We need to be aware that it happens to everyone. And then our brains are capable of just not encoding information, even when it's right in front of us. And I do think that can lead to a sort of tunnel vision when you're talking about something like chess, when you're talking about something creative where you have like a certain vision for a project. And so you don't take other people's points of view because you're just so, you know that you know the right way to do it. And so I think it's just important to be constantly aware of that and to try to have a good balance of focus, but also awareness. Yeah. One thing that chess players sometimes do to try to fix this tunnel vision problem, because, you know, obviously this deep focus often results in brilliant ideas and like, you know, fantastic calculations and sacrifices. But I noticed that like in a classical game where we're playing over the board, what chess players sometimes do is at the end of their analysis, they might try to look at the board from another vantage point, even kind of like stand up. Sometimes people do, or, you know, try to like, just kind of like reset and take one last look that's more of like a breadth look than a depth look and then they make their move right that's brilliant yeah what's the corollary for that in like real life or in poker I think so this is something that I've read a lot about and and written um, about in mastermind the ability to take a step back and to kind of have perspective and to look at problems from multiple points of view. And why the reason I interrupted you to say that's brilliant is because so many people don't think to do that. And so many people think that, oh, you know, it's 
it shows that I'm not serious or it shows that I'm not focused or it shows that this or that. And they're, and they won't just get up and say, you know, what if I stand on my head and look at this? <laughs> What's, what am I going to see? And it seems silly, but it's actually such a brilliant way of helping your brain get perspective and see things that you otherwise wouldn't see. Even in poker, I find that it often helps to you know, if you find that you're getting tired and that you're experiencing a tunnel vision of sorts because you've classified players as certain types and you have a strategy that you're kind of, that you're locked into to get up and to actually just walk around, take a tour around the table and to just gain a little bit of perspective. And in real life, I think we've actually, especially in the United States, created a society where that sort of thing is really punished as opposed to rewarded in kind of your, in your daily corporate life, because we're told that taking breaks is bad, that we want to be productive. And we have this kind of mentality of, we used to have a mentality of FaceTime before COVID. I don't know what's going to happen after, but it was just kind of presence. And, oh, if I'm here the earliest and I stay the latest and I don't take a lunch break, then I'm the best worker. And I think that that is just so misguided. I always tell people that if they want a productive workforce, if they want people who are actually creative and who actually do good work, encourage everyone to take a lunch break and actually leave. So I think it's just so important when you're working on anything to take breaks and to just change perspective, go to another room, just completely clear your mind of what you were working on. Give yourself space to think and to see things from different angles. We have a mentality so often that you just need to jump right in. Otherwise you're wasting time. And One of the things that I found over and over is that wasting time, quote unquote, can be the most productive thing you do because it actually helps you see things in a new light. It helps you see patterns that you otherwise would miss. It helps you see problems that you otherwise would miss. And sometimes you realize, oh my God, I've been solving the wrong problem because the problem that's in front of me isn't the real problem. There are underlying issues. There are other things here. There are other things I should be focused on. And so I think that to be a a deep thinker and to actually be a creative thinker, be someone who's productive and able to move past just rote day-to-day stuff, you need to hone those abilities and you need to give yourself permission to take breaks and to waste time. Because the other thing is you never know what's going to be useful. Maybe during my lunch break, I go and take a walk and I see something and later on that's going to actually help me be productive and creative in a new way. You don't know what's going to be useful. You don't know what your brain is going to need. You don't know what a problem's going to need. And so just take it all in and learn how to get up from the chessboard and take a step back and look at it from a different angle. And I think you'd be surprised by what you might see and by how much of a better player you might become. And I mean, your books, I love the ideas for them. And I, I, I kind of like wonder um, when you came up with like the concepts and ideas for these books, I know sometimes they were based on articles, but did you sometimes get those ideas from these like kind of empty spaces, like whether it be for a walk or a shower? Well, um, the confidence game came out of watching a movie. So I was just having let's relax evening, um, which I don't do often because I have so many things going on and no, I'm, I'm someone who who does work quite long hours, but was watching uh, David Mamet's House of Games. And that was actually the origin of the confidence game because watch that movie. And for people who haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Um, I won't give you any spoilers, but it's a Mamet film and Mamet is obsessed with con artists. So it's one of his con artist movies. 
I remember walking away from it or turning the TV off and thinking, wow, what a fascinating notion that someone who's really intelligent, someone who's a psychologist, someone who should know how to read people, that she becomes a victim of a con. Because normally when you look at how con artist victims are portrayed in popular culture, it's, you know, they're gullible or they're stupid or they're greedy, all of these things. She wasn't. She was like your perfect wonderful alpha female who who has it all. And she was the victim. And I thought, how often does that happen? Is that really true? And I started trying to find an answer and I couldn't. And it ended up being my next book. It came out of a movie, just movie night. I had no idea that that's what I was going to write about. Um, my first book, Mastermind, I mean, it, that one is the only one that came out of an article, but the article came out of a childhood memory when my dad read to us. And it came out of this just one random thing that I happened to remember, which was Holmes asking Watson how many steps lead up to 221B Baker Street and Watson not knowing. And Holmes saying, well, that's the difference between us. You only see, I both see and observe. And those words... That was the only thing I remembered of the story. I didn't remember what the story was. I hadn't reread the Holmes stories for years and years. I'm not one of those people who became obsessed with Holmes as a kid and then stayed obsessed for my entire life. I loved the stories when I was young, but then I left them behind. And then I rediscovered them in my 20s for this article when just this random thing came into my head. So this goes back to both the moments of brain space and quiet, but also you never know what's going to be useful. You never know what you're going to end up using as fodder for your thinking, for your ideas, for how your life goes. So I think it's a really silly way to live your life to say, is this going to be useful? You know, is this going to get me where I want to go? Because you don't know. That's something poker teaches you, right? <laughs> Life's uncertain. You have no idea what's going to happen. So just do as well as you can right now in the moment. And then whatever will happen will happen. Now, my my last book, The Biggest Bluff, definitely came out of brain space because I was sick and was spending a lot of time at home just with my own thoughts. And so that that came out of a lot of reflection and silence. You know, the, the first book you wrote, you know, you mentioning about your childhood memory of um, Sherlock Holmes noticing um, how many steps there were. So observing and seeing. I found that fascinating. I read it when I interviewed you for the grade. And at the time, I was a newer mom than now. I think my child was already um, two and a half or something. But still, one thing that noticed me when you have a kid you notice things more like that because you are like taking them up and down the steps, like, and like saying one, two, three, four, five, six, you know? And I was like, yes, because I have a new kid. I can actually answer this. <laughs> Whereas like, if you asked me five years ago, I'd have no freaking idea because we're kind of forced to like re-explore the world as somebody with new eyes. And I've heard about these theories that children, especially babies are almost like on psychedelics because they see everything at once. And like, it's just like this overwhelming world. And, you know, we're, but we as like adults are kind of like able to kind of like filter out all the extraneous details and that sometimes those details are pretty important. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think something that's really important is to try not to lose your inner child, to kind of try to hold on to that. Because if you just think about how a toddler, you know, how a young child explores the world, everything is interesting. Everything is exciting. It's impossible. I have lots of nieces and nephews, even though I don't have any kids. It's impossible to take a walk with them when they're little because you think, you know, you leave 10 minutes because it takes you, you know, five minutes to walk there. So you think 10 minutes should be plenty of time. An hour later, you're still trying to get them down the block because everything's interesting and they keep pausing and they keep asking questions and they're involved. And it's so easy to just lose that sense of wonder and to lose that 
ability to really look at things and say, wow, we live in a really fascinating place. All of these things are interesting and there are so many interesting questions. And why is the sky blue? Right? That's a cliche question that kids ask, but almost every kid asks it. And if you think about how just amazing that is, it's, it's a really, really cool moment. And so I think that some of the best thinkers are the ones who are able to have that inner child in them who don't lose their sense of wonder and joy and discovery and who are able to just immerse themselves in different things and take in a lot of the world and not get lost in just one little thing or one little idea. I'll tell you something that really is it one of my fondest memories of my graduate advisor, Walter Michelle, um, who died a few years ago. I was his last grad student. And I remember initially approaching him and he wasn't taking students anymore. He was like, you know, I'm done. I, my last grad student graduated a few years ago. I convinced him to, and it was a very interesting conversation because normally when you go into academia, people really want you to be focused on academia and on exactly what you're going to be studying. And I actually was very honest with Walter. And I said, you know, I don't want to go into academia. I want to be a writer. I'm interested in all of these different things, but I want to work with you. I want to learn from you. I want to explore your ideas. And I'm, you know, I'll be very self-motivated. I promise you're not going to have to do anything except talk to me and uh, and advise me, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a psychologist. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I wouldn't want to go into academia these days either because of the pressure to publish, the pressure to kind of have this insane output, the pressure to hyper-specialize, the pressure to really focus on one thing and the fact that you're punished for doing other things. Walter was unique in the sense that he was from an old world. He was a beautiful painter. I mean, his art was just amazing. He had some solo exhibitions during his lifetime. He just knew everything about music and and he was very good friends with Serge Zabarsky, who was the founder of the of the Zabarsky art collection and uh, all of this wonderful stuff. And he and he loved everything. And I think his theories were deeper because of that. And he, his contribution to psychology was much more lasting because of that. And I was protected because I was his student, but a lot of people in the department hated me because I was doing popular writing. I wasn't serious. And they punished other students who tried to do that. And so, so many times I'd have people come to me and just, and ask for me not to tell anyone, but they were interested in doing something other than academia and there was no one they could talk to. And that was heartbreaking because they knew that they'd be punished for it because what was rewarded was just laser focus on one thing, on what you were going to do, not on reading fiction or poetry or doing art or playing chess or having other interests. And that seemed like if you did that, you were wasting time. And so I think that finding the jewels like Walter in this world, I think that that's kind of the, to me, that's the pinnacle. And I want to be a Walter when I grow up. Oh, that's amazing. And, he, and that was Columbia University. Yeah. And he's most famous for the marshmallow experiment, right? Can you wait for your second marshmallow or whatever it is? The marshmallow experiment actually didn't use marshmallows very often, which is a little known fact. It was whatever the kid wanted most. I did not know that. Yeah. For others, it was cookies or candies or basically they figured out what the kid's most favorite thing in the world was. That's what you had to wait for. <laughs> That is, that's really interesting because I always thought that um, the only reason I would be able to pass the marshmallow test is because I don't really like marshmallows, but now, now I have to reassess that. <laughs> I mean, 
mean, you know, if you put them in some chocolate and graham crackers, maybe, but they're a little slimy, you know? Yeah, I don't like marshmallows either. You know, you mentioned earlier um, Baker Street and the steps in Baker Street. And um, something that you might not know is that there's actually a chess club on 44 Baker Street. It's, it's a chess shop. So there's a lot of kind of links between Sherlock Holmes and chess, which was one of the reasons that I wanted to center our conversation on that book. And in fact, one of my favorite books as a girl was um, The Chess Mysteries of Sherlock Holmes, which was about retrograde analysis. And it's a kind of chess analysis that's not really that practical. Um, it's not like to make you better at openings or end games. What it is, is these stories in which um, Sherlock Holmes encounters a chess position and you have to figure out using retrograde analysis, how it happened. So it's like the opposite of most chess. Usually we visualize forwards. And this was like visualizing backwards what must have happened to get us to this point. And I, I, I was never really good at it, but I found it like absolutely fascinating. Like a lot of times I couldn't figure it out and I had to like turn the page at some point after like 15 minutes of like thinking like, how does he know? How does he know? Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm rereading it now, of course, because of all the overlap in Sherlock Holmes right now in my, uh, my work. And do you think of that thinking backwards in helping us in real life as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think just thinking differently helps. So take the way that you normally think through something. Take the way that you usually analyze a problem and flip it on its head. Do it differently. Try to figure out, okay, what's another approach? What's another way of doing it? And thinking backwards is a wonderful trick because it actually forces you to to do that in a completely new way. And it forces you to use different brain muscles because when you're used to thinking a certain way, even if it's a really difficult thing to do, you become better at it because you're, you do it often and you know what you're supposed to do and you know what kinds of things you're supposed to look at. You have tricks, you have strategies. Then all of a sudden, if you're not allowed to use those anymore, because now you have to think completely in the opposite direction, all of a sudden you have to try to exercise different parts of your mind and different parts of your imagination and try to think, okay, well, what's applicable here? How do I even start? What are the tools? How do I how do I break this apart? I think a lot of times you find that it becomes a this beautiful circle because then you pick up tools there that will make you better at your usual type of thinking. So you'll be able to do that analysis in a much stronger way. Bringing new perspectives and new angles is always useful. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of the times the biggest innovations in fields were done by outsiders who came in from a totally different area and they looked at things using their kind of a different approach. And people in that field who'd been laser focused the whole time said, huh, I never even considered to ask that question. I never even considered that this might be an option or, oh, that will never work. Oh, wait. It does. And Grandmaster Maurice Ashley, who you actually wrote about in The Biggest Bluff, yeah. he had a TED talk about working backwards to kind of figure out where you want to be. So you see that final position that you want to be and then going backwards. And yeah, that, that definitely resonates with me as a big life lesson from chess. Um, so in The Biggest Bluff, as you mentioned earlier, you got one of the best players in the world, Eric Seidel, to coach you. What was the n n most memorable lesson um, that might also apply to us chess players? Yeah, um, well, there were so many memorable lessons, but I think the the phrase that just I keep coming back to over and over and over is something that he told me in a very offhand way. And then when I later kind of spit it back at him, he's like, oh, that's very eloquent. I'm like, that's you. I've got the recording right here. 
And uh, those are your words. And it was just, it was, it was very simple. And it was less certainty, more inquiry. And to me, that's just such a powerful way to live your life, to abandon the notion that you know it all, that you know the answer, that you know the approach, that you know how you're supposed to do it, no matter how good you are and how much of an expert you are. I mean, the fact that Eric Seidel told me this, and he's one of the greatest players to have ever played the game, I mean, that says something. He constantly questions himself. That's why he's still so good, because his mind is constantly open. It's constantly inquiring. It's constantly willing to adapt. And I think that even in chess, and I say even in chess because chess is a different sort of game in that it's a solved game. It's a game of complete information. And yet it's a game that also evolves and you have different forms of chess. You have, you know, computers and AI have really changed the game. You have speed chess, you have all of these different things. And so I think that kind of the the players who are probably able to stay on top of it and who don't see it as, oh my God, this is terrible. The game is now ruined. And instead say, okay, how do I use these tools to enhance my own thinking and my own play and my own creativity? I think they're the ones who are going to end up not just surviving, but thriving like the Eric Seidel's of the world. And to me, that's just such a powerful lesson for poker, for chess, for anything, to constantly be open-minded. This starting point of constant inquiry and of acknowledging, you know, I might be wrong. And by the way, that's just a good way to go through life and it will avoid a lot of painful situations. Considering your first experiences with chess, it sounds like you might not be interested in this, but if there was a very intelligent grown-up writer who wanted to do something similar to The Biggest Bluff in chess, start from kind of a newbie to becoming as proficient as possible in a couple of years, what advice would you give them that you learned from your journey? <laughs> um, well, first of all, it's going to take a lot of effort um, and time, and there are no shortcuts. And I think that's probably even more true of chess than it is of poker, in the sense that, you know, poker is a game where I could leverage a lot of the skills that I had that I was bringing in because it is a game of incomplete information and it's a game of people and of bluffing and of all these different things. So I was able to leverage a lot of my experience as a psychologist, as a journalist, as a writer. I could bring that all in as an outsider to this game. And chess, and please correct me if I say anything wrong (laughs) about chess, but chess is a game that is much more mathematical and much more kind of logical. And I think it's difficult. It's not like I can suddenly say, oh, I know psychology, so I'll be able to out thank you. No, it it doesn't work that way. I'm not trying to outthink you in that way. I'm trying to exploit your mistakes, but those mistakes are made kind of on the board and in that sort of space. So I think it's probably at least initially going to take even more time to become good at chess than it does to become good at poker. And you're really going to have to immerse yourself in that world. I had to immerse myself in poker. I mean, I basically made it my full-time job and I lived and breathed poker. And I think if I had tried to do this with chess, I think it would have been even more extreme. I think you're right. And I think just the goalpost would be different. Like you winning an open poker championship for over $100,000 in your first year of playing, you know, in chess, I think if somebody had a similar goal, they'd probably have to like win a, a specific division in chess. And that could still be really impressive. But, you know, winning a tournament open to everyone wouldn't be part of it think it would be impossible, especially if they were starting with like no knowledge. And I think you made a brilliant point actually about the fact that you can bring psychology writing directly into poker, but because chess is so abstract, kind of like music or a language, you really just have to absorb yourself in it. Those human qualities aren't going to help you 
directly. They might help you with like a study program and analyzing your game, but in the game itself, not quite as much. So that's why it would be a lot harder. And you didn't really say anything wrong about chess, except that the game is not solved. It's just computers are much better at us, but we don't know yet what like the best move is, right? So it's a little different. Sure. It's solved in the computer sense of a computer can kind of outplay a human. Yes. But the computers don't know whether 1d4 or 1e4 is better for now. Although it's looking like the Queen's Gambit has an edge, which is a hilarious kind of collision of art and science. <laughs> That's very funny. You know what? A lot of the times AI has discovered that some of the things that humans didn't know why they were good, you know, it's it's true in poker too, right? Where you suddenly have the solvers kind of discovering that one certain strategy is good. And then you look and you see that some brilliant player had actually just figured it out earlier and without that computational knowledge, just like by by realizing that it was good. So I'm not at all surprised that the Queen's Gambit actually might end up being a, a winner. <laughs> the GTO opening. I've been a lifelong E4 player along with like Bobby Fischer and Judah Polgar. So I'm in good company, but most um, elite players now are learning both just to be flexible. And, you know, chess right now is booming. And I did just want to touch briefly on your book, The Confidence Game, because it's about con artists. And unfortunately, with the rise of chess in this boom and offering solace to people during the pandemic is amazing. There is one negative effect that we are seeing an increase in chess and cheating. And the crazy thing is, Maria, that there's not even any money in most of the events that cheating take place. I mean, is that something you noticed in your work too, that sometimes these confidence games weren't even necessarily for money? It was kind of like the the joy of the con. I would actually make that an even stronger statement. I would say that the vast, vast, vast majority of the time, it's not about money. When you're talking about con artists, when you're not talking about like fraudsters, right? Fraud, when you're committing financial fraud, it's about the money. But in my mind, that's a different category from con artists, from people who con kind of as a, as a living, as a, who's whose life is predicated on taking advantage of other people's trust for their own personal ends. And I found that they aren't motivated by money because they're usually very smart people who could be very successful and make a lot more money doing almost anything else. And they're usually just on the border of being broke because they go from one con to another con to another con and that takes money <laughs> and they leading multiple lives and they don't actually, they're not wealthy individuals or they're actually spending it on the lifestyle. So they don't have much to spare. But to me, it's about power. It's about control. It's about playing God in a way and being able to screw with other people and to change their reality and to kind of change their world. And you're the one in charge. It's you're pulling one over on them. You're the one who can actually show your one-upmanship. And that's why I think they become addicted to kind of that high of power and of control over other people. The language I don't like using is the language of addiction, <laughs> but I do think that there's something in that, you know, they get away with it and that's also a rush and they want to keep doing it and they become more ambitious. And the more they get away with it and the more they're able to kind of exercise their power over others and change reality in a way that benefits them, the harder it is to walk away. That's why I've actually never met a con artist who's gone straight. There are ones who've gotten great opportunities, really great job offers, really kind of great forum from which to become a success 
successful, legitimate person. I'm thinking specifically of kind of one of the heroes of, or anti-heroes of my book, Ferdinand Waldo de Mara, the great imposter who impersonated dozens of people over decades and actually became quite famous because he was caught multiple times and the biography was written called The Great Imposter. And then a movie was made starring Tony Curtis. And then the real Ferdinand Waldo de Mara started appearing on Late Night with Johnny Carson on all these shows. And he got actual job offers and people like he was a celebrity and he just went right back to conning because he always said he wanted to go straight and he never actually wanted to go straight because he missed that thrill. And so even though he had more money and more stability and more everything in these legitimate professions, um, he didn't want that. He wanted kind of the pulling one over on people. And so when you tell me that you know there's really not that much money in chess and yet people want to cheat... I'm not at all surprised, even though when people cheat at chess, when people cheat at poker, my reaction is why, you know, why play? It's a game. Why are you playing it if you don't, if you're not actually intellectually engaged in the challenge of the game? And of course, that's not how they're thinking about it at all. And uh, to me, that's, that's sad, but it's kind of the, it's the truth of humanity, but one that I want to keep pushing back against because I don't want that to be true. I would rather be in a world where people didn't do that. Yeah, me too. And I mean, it's funny because you talk about the overlap of life and poker. And I think this is one case where life in chess is true as well, that most of us play with these rules. But then sometimes there are games where people are playing with other rules and, you know, you have to figure out how to beat them even when they are twisting the rules. And there's a lot of great people kind of working for, you know, fair play, using mathematical algorithms so that if a chess player were to play perfect moves for 40 moves in a, you know, blitz game, they would get caught by the site. So then there's this interesting calibration where a cheater has to kind of see what's the most I can get away with and not get caught. And it's a bit of an arms race, but uh, yeah, there is money in chess, but not in like blitz games online unless it's like a special event. So yeah, this this is a, a problem, but to, but to end on a positive note, because the cheating in chess um, and poker can obviously be like a two hour long conversation because there's so many examples. I wanted to say that the Queen's Gambit caused a boom in chess interest. And one thing it showed that was a lot like poker, the world can actually be quite glamorous and fun in addition to being mentally taxing and rigorous. In The Biggest Bluff, your, your most recent book that we've talked a lot about over this conversation, you traveled all over the world to play poker. What was your absolute favorite destination, um, which is a particularly fun um, conversational topic now as nobody's going anywhere? Oh, um, without a doubt, Barcelona. Uh, there's just nothing comes even close because in Barcelona, you are in a real city. You know, the casino is right on the water on, on your break. Talk about taking mental distance. You can walk outside and you're on the beach and you can actually just look at the water. And that's just the best way of just letting your mind reset. You're looking at nature. You're looking at this great force of nature and water is amazing for creativity. There's actually a huge effect of being by the water for, for clear thinking. So there's that aspect. And then you're also, you're inside a vibrant real city with great food and museums and history and art, and it's beautiful. And that's what I appreciated about that destination as opposed to, you know, a lot of people would say Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo is like a playground Disney world for incredibly wealthy gamblers. That's all there is there. The food is insanely overpriced. You know, you're in this postage stamp of billionaires. So I don't actually love Monte Carlo. It's pretty, but 
that's about it. You know, it's not like I can go and explore the culture um, because it's all casinos and high-end boutiques and restaurants where a burger costs 50 euros. And that's not my idea of uh, the ideal location. I hated Macau, so don't even <laughs> get me started on that. That would end on a less than positive note. But you know what? I've grown to really appreciate Vegas. I never thought I started off hating Vegas. And now I actually like Vegas because it also has life. And it also is a vibrant place with a lot of culture and a lot of different people and a lot of stuff that you can find. You just have to get off the strip. So as I came to know Vegas, I came to appreciate it in a much deeper way than I ever had before. And I realized, oh, I don't like the strip, but I actually really like Las Vegas in, in a lot of ways. But um, the answer to your question is still Barcelona. But I wanted to give a shout out to Vegas for being much better than I ever gave it credit for. You know, we have very similar tastes in cities because Vegas and Barcelona are two of my favorites as well. And much like you, I was just so excited to visit Monaco when I first heard there were tournaments there and I tried to qualify and I didn't. I was devastated and I finally got there. And it, yeah, it was it was like it was it was fun. It was beautiful. Right now, I definitely go there. Sure. It wasn't exactly what I expected to. It was even a little bit sleepy in a way. It was quiet and I was expecting something much more like, you know, crazy and fun. Um, but um, Vegas, yeah, Vegas, there's a lot of chess, too. And I think it's a city that, you know, is uniquely struggling due to the lack of travel and tourism. So I can't wait to go back and, and stimulate Vegas a little bit. Yeah, I agree. Seriously, Maria, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to, you know, go to your website, mariaconacova.com, find out more about your books. There's so much chess players, I think, have to learn from you and your work. And it's also... A lot of fun just to read your books. We're talking about that. Take a little mental relaxation. You know, you need to study your Sicilian and your rook end games, but sometimes you just need to read a good book and see how that changes your perspective on your work. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, you know, maybe one day I'll ask you to uh, teach me how to defend against all the variations of the scholar's mate so that next time I can at least last more than three moves in my next chess match. Absolutely. Let's do it. Although I can't guarantee you immunity from kindergartners because they are getting really good, Maria. <laughs> It's okay. My ego has become much less fragile than it was at age 10. I, I can take it. I can take it. I promise. <laughs> when Fabi beats me, I will, I will be okay with it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Maria Kanakova, the author of The Biggest Bluff and Mastermind, our second book for the Mad Women's Book Club. If you like what we're doing at U.S. Chess to encourage women and girls to explore STEM fields, accentuate competence, and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality, your donation to our U.S. Chess Women programs is always appreciated and tax deductible. The U.S. Chess Suite of podcasts, including Ladies Night, are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all U.S. Chess Podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and The Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be ladies' night. Now according to Sockfish, I got it all wrong. After slightly advantage I had nothing but my dear Capablanco You tell me 